understanding of always be as prepared as you can uh, towards the races. But I also think that the mental training I did when I was a boxer, like preparing, uh, visualize how will I enter the ring? How will my first um, combination be? How will I react if I get hit? I took that type of visualization over to my running to try to prepare, okay, how will I react to this situation if I, um, for example, make a wrong turn and waste some energy and time uh, running the wrong way? Uh, how will I react and what mental strategies can I prepare uh, to use in, in situations like that? That, my friend, was Christina Madsen. And this is the Inspiration Runners podcast. Hey everyone, hope everyone is keeping well during this crazy time. My name's Robbie Marsh and I'm your host, so welcome to the podcast. We have another amazing female athlete who has once again been showing the men how it's done. Overall winner of the World Major Marathon Challenge, which consists of seven marathons on seven continents in seven days. Not only did she beat all of the men, but she managed to achieve her main goal of breaking the women's world record with an average time of three hours, 25 minutes per marathon in extreme diverse conditions. She also holds the FKT for the female Kilimanjaro Summit Ascent, winner of numerous stage races through the jungle, desert and extreme altitudes. She graces an 18 hours, 45 minute Bob Graham round, which is pretty awesome from a runner from flat Denmark, whose highest ascent is a mere 180 meters. Before we start, I'd just like to give a quick mention to the sponsors of the podcast, We Run Wild Northern Ireland. As like everywhere else on the planet, all races have been postponed or cancelled, but we will get back to you as soon as those dates start to reappear. Do you want to hold you up any further? It's with great pleasure I give you Christina Matson. When did you, like 2013 is the first thing I have on the radar for me, and you entered a race in the Himalayas. Yeah. Was that your, your main race that you, or the first main race that you entered? Well, I um, so I'm a former boxer, so I I've always been happy uh, to to do sports, uh, especially like physical sports. But I did my first half marathon back in 2008, and it was actually like a stupid bet with one of my friends who said, "I <laughs> I dare you to do this." And after a few beers, it was at a party. I said, "Of course, I can do that." And we're back in 2008 and everyone seems to be doing half marathons. So I said, I just thought, how difficult could it be? So I signed up for a half marathon back in 2008. And I've never done any kind of running before. Just just when we did our boxing training, we did some intervals and we always ran really fast. Short distances, but really fast. But I... I managed to get through the half marathon and it was like the hardest thing I've ever done. <laughs> uh, it it went well for the first three kilometers and then I just... <laughs> the first three kilometers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Only another 18 to go. Yes. So it, it was a really hard marathon. I, I thought about quitting a lot through that race. But when I reached the finish line, I... I well, first of all, I was glad it was over, but... There was some other, um, it gave me something else that I was really happy and proud about myself. And I, I did that. Just, I, only me, I, I was the only one who could 
you know, I, I did that. I ran through 21 kilometers and um, I, was, um, I, I was surprised that I actually wanted to give up during the 21 kilometers. So the first thing I did when I came back uh, home was to sign up for a marathon. Uh, half a year later and I promised myself let me try to do some training but I can say the first two years after that I signed up for races but I didn't really enjoy to run and it was only when I had an opportunity to to do the Everest marathon in 2013 and I um, I had some time off work I was in between jobs so I moved to Nepal three months before the race and I spent a lot of time in the Himalayas to train for the race and to acclimatize. And then I did the Everest Marathon. And it was absolutely, I loved it. I loved it all the way. And that was when I started to, well, enjoy to run. Um, so that's... Um, but that, that was that's, an, an epic journey though, wasn't it? Like such an adventure. Do you know what I mean? Yes. You had a bit of an opportunity, you're off work. Um, you're signed up for the Himalayan marathon in Nepal so I'm going to take two months out there and enjoy that it's not just yeah. the race is it it's the whole experience that it's, starting it's to the unfold. whole yeah it's the whole experience so you have to trek to the start line which is just below Gorak Shep in 5,200 meters above sea level so it takes you you it takes you around seven, eight days to even get to the starting line. <laughs> uh, and you walk and trek with some of the other participants. And that's just an extra level of, of the race that you get to be uh, so close with other people. And you have at least one thing in common, and that's the seek for this adventure. And that's the, that's the running stuff. So I made some some really good friends doing that trek and that race. Um, but to stand, you know, just just next to Mount Everest, Lhotse and all all the really big mountains, uh, that's that's something you can't describe. And that was the first time I experienced that. And I just loved it. I just loved it. Yeah, that was a, a, a different sort of marathon experience. Um, I did Uganda Marathon last year, which was a bit similar because we had to spend, we got to spend a week with the people that were running the marathon. So it was very similar. We had seven days and we went to all these different places in Uganda, like schools, etc. So at the starting line, you knew everybody really, really well. Yeah. And it made it yeah. re a real special marathon based on that. What was your time that you got in your first half marathon? Uh, let me think. So it, it's, it was not a bad time, but I think it was one hour and 51 minutes. Okay, that was pretty but, good. But, you know, I started off in an insane pace. So I think my, <laughs> my finish time, if I kept the pace, I did the first three kilometers, it would be like 120 or something. Yeah. <laughs> I think my first one was one fifty one and thirty seconds as well. Like, and I I fell over the line grey. <laughs> my wife was there with the kids to <laughs> welcome me, but she, I looked over and I seen her just turn the kids' heads away. I thought, oh, <laughs> that's not good. <laughs> um, so that really planted the seed then, because your original races were sort of road races. Did that make you lean more towards sort of treks and trails and things like that? Yes, definitely. So I came back to Denmark um, 
about a week after the Everest Marathon. And I did some training on the road, but it, it was just not exciting anymore. So I knew trail running was was my way of running. So I, I quickly signed up for um, an ultra trail race in, in Europe, Sukspitze Ultra Trail. Uh, I signed up for the 60 kilometers and I did that in June 2014. And again, I absolutely love to race and run in the mountains. So um, one thing is to do the running and I love the technical bits. I love the uphill, I love the downhills, but to run in these amazing surroundings, that's just uh, something special. Quite liberating. But you were, did you find yourself more competitive then? Because you actually you came second, didn't you, in the Himalayan race? I did, I did. Uh, I was surprised about that. I, I've always been competitive, uh, even from I was a child uh, to when I started to boxing um, and I'm, I'm not very fun, you know, in family situation when we play a board game or something, I'm, I'm <laughs> super competitive and that's, you can say that's a bad side of me, but it's also um, a good side of me because everything I enter, I, I can see, I, I love the competitive part of it. I, I really do. I, I wouldn't like to be playing board games in the house with you. Like, cause if you get beat, you're going to punch the head of me most probably. <laughs> Mm-hmm. yeah that do you will find happen. them because i have had uh, a few boxers on the podcast before um you know there's a great discipline learned through boxing isn't there because it's yeah. a very you know if you haven't done the work it's just you in the ring and the other person mm-hmm. did you find that role over then into your running uh yeah i i definitely do so um i um how can I explain that? I, I have to, sometimes I, yeah. my English is a bit bad. I'll, I'll try to explain it the best way I can. But um, there's no doubt about I I like to do like physical demanding sports, which boxing is and, and running can be. Um, but I definitely learned the discipline in boxing that if, if you don't do your training and you're not prepared, uh, you will get hurt <laughs> and, and that will be your own fault. So I think I took that discipline and that structure into training and the understanding of always be as prepared as you can uh, towards the races. But I also think that the mental training I did when I was a boxer, like preparing, uh, vis- visualize how will I enter the ring, how will my first... Um, combination B, how will I react if I get hit? I took that type of visualization over to my running to try to prepare, okay, how will I react to this situation if I, um, for example, make a wrong turn and waste some energy and time uh, running the wrong way? Uh, How will I react and what mental strategies can I prepare uh, to use in, in situations like that. I definitely have that sort of um, uh, way, um, how do you say that? I, I have approach, yes, from from the boxing, definitely. Yeah, the visualization is a key thing, like especially when you go into these type of longer and ultra races, like mm-hmm. um, and having the visualization, you know, it can take away that panic 
mood fr- from you. And even when you, it gives you more confidence standing at the starting line because especially if you're competitive as well and you're looking across the field, a lot of people don't do that. So if you if you have the confidence, you might have a, a little bit of a, a mental gain on your competitors. That in itself yeah. just gives you a bit more confidence, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I totally agree. And also, um, that that's the one thing being mentally prepared can give you confidence but the other thing about being being prepared for example i i did some um, multi-stage races and a very important thing about that especially if it's self-sufficient is how you pack your bag and i spend hours packing my bag <laughs> repacking it uh weigh all my stuff uh to for my bag to weigh as as um, so it can be as, as light as possible um, and that's, of course, an advantage to carry less stuff. But I think the most important thing is when I'm at the starting line, I don't have to worry about could I've prepared differently? Could I have done anything to be better prepared? No, I'm 100%. I pack my bag as I could. It is as efficient as possible. So I can just um, focus all my energy to do to race uh to run and to do what i'm here for and that's it like because it is such a mental game you're taking out as much of that thinking as possible that you can just strip it right back and all i have to do now is think about my form and my running everything else is fine Um, yes how did your first ultra go then um it went really well actually so um we were five people from my running club i'm in my from my local running club we went down to south of germany and my plan was to take it very easily so i kind of um agree well i i ran with the group but after our first um when we reached the top of the first mountain i think it was like eight kilometers in I just said, this is too slow, and I went off, and I I really had big respect for the 60 kilometers uh, distance and the nearly 3,000 meters of elevation, so I went fairly conservative, uh, of course, the first eight kilometers and the next 40 kilometers, but I managed to get in top 10, and afterwards, I thought, wow, if I can do that, by not really be in race mode, I can, um, I can, I can definitely do something about that. So that that was um, a great race. Yeah, pretty exciting for you as well, then, because you're trying to find out where you are. You haven't really learnt that much about ultra running, and all of no. that is just you're seeing that all really as opportunity ahead of you. So even though you're in the top ten in this sixty k race with huge ascent. Um, you're sort of buzzing after that, thinking of what the prospects can bring. I was, I think, only a couple of hours after I was back in Denmark. I was searching <laughs> online, <laughs> what's my next race? What's my next race? Yeah. So how did you, like, I know you were in the Himalayas the year before, which would have helped, but Denmark's pretty flat, isn't it? Yeah, it's tough to be a trail mountain runner in Denmark. Our highest peak is like 180 above wow. sea level. Uh, so I see that that's, that's the situation. You can't change that. So you just have to make the most of it. So sometimes, um, when I, I have to do the elevation training, I train on the same hill 
and I maybe run up and down 35 or 40 times to get like a thousand, a thousand elevation meters. Or um, when I was training for um, the FKT um, attempt on Kilimanjaro back in 2018, uh, I was training indoor on a treadmill because you can elevate the treadmill and you can just keep on running or fast walking up. And I kind of needed that. So the downhill training in Denmark is a problem. Um, and that's why we often struggle in, in long mountain races if they have a long descent. It's, it's really hard work for, for your thighs. Yeah, because it is, we always go on about the ascent, but the descent actually has a bigger impact on your body, doesn't yeah. it? And that's where yeah. a lot of people struggle and a lot of your, your quads and knees start to give in because they haven't been really prepared for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what, what suits you then? Is it like a long downhill? You've got the likes of UTMB and CCC. I've got those long downhill four or five mile trails. Would you prefer that or do you prefer like technical type of terrain coming down? Um. Well, if you can mix really technical terrain with lots of up and downhills, I like that. I, I also like the multi-states events. I've done some of the Beyond the Ultimate States events. Um, I did Jungle Ultra back in 2016. I loved that. It was really technical and, how do you say that, um, the variety, is that the right word, uh, of the terrain. So yeah. it changes all the time. I, I love that. There wasn't a massive climb in the in the jungle, but still we had to to do um, a fairly amount of climbing. Yeah, but the, the jungle is quite surprising, isn't it? I haven't done it myself, but it is quite hilly. You know, it people is, think yeah. of uh, a jungle, but there's just hills after hills after hills. So there might be huge. It's not Kilimanjaro territory, no. but there is like a lot of ascending and descending. Yeah. You, you can't really relax on that race because something is always going on. If it is the technical trail, uh, up and down hills, it's, it's, just, it's just great. That's one of the best races I've ever done. I, I love that race. So that's done, is that the Ultimate Ultra? Um, it's um, organized by Beyond the Ultimate. Yeah, that's right. It's like yeah. a 230-kilometer race. Is it self-sufficient? It is. It's self-sufficient, yes, so you have to carry everything yourself in, in your bag. Uh, you get water supplied every, I think it's around every 10 kilometers. But um, apart from that, you're basically on your own with your own sleeping bag and hammock. It's, it's great. It's really great. And how do you prepare for that? There's a lot of humidity, I'm assuming. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, um, um, I don't know how to describe it in, in English, but... When you do enter um, the jungle, you, you really do that on stage two. But when you make the turn into the jungle, it's like hitting a wall with the high humidity. And it's, it's, in, it's insane, actually, because suddenly you really feel the heat and the humidity. That's just that's a weird thing to run in because your, your body... Uh, you really need to be smart about, um, well, to listen to your body and listen to all the signals um, your body gives you. But it's um, it's it's special and it you, it's really difficult to train and to prepare for the humidity. The only thing you can do is like, okay, I know the humidity is going to be high, so I just have to accept that when it happens. Yeah, you're saying you have to bring your own sleeping bag there and hammock. 
so mm-hmm. you, you set all that up yourself there's no like it's not like the mds where they have like tents and all waiting for you no so they um you have a fixed stage that you have to finish each day and um they they um they they choose a place for the start and finish line where you have the opportunity to set up your hammocks um and that's it that's it actually they provide warm hot water so you can get your freeze um freeze dried food is uh, food is it called that it must have been surreal for you though like here you are now i would love that to be honest you know here you are running through <laughs> the jungle do you know what i mean I'm, like how did it ever come to this like, yeah, that's yeah. pretty cool. Like there must have been times um, during that race that had gone through your head. Yes, yes. And that's that's the amazing that's one of the amazing thing about doing what I do. I get to travel to like weird and strange and beautiful and just awesome places in the world that you never go there if you're not a runner. Why be in the middle of the a Peruvian Amazon de- um, jungle if, if you're not doing a stage race? And why be in the Namibian desert in the middle of nowhere if you're not doing a stage race? Or why am I running to the top of Kilimanjaro? Or why am I in Antarctica right now? That's because I'm running. And it's I'm very thankful for, for all the opportunity uh, to see great nature. How many people entered the jungle race? Um, I think they are limited to 75 people and I think we were about 70 75 people when I did it back in 2016 um so it's you can say it's a small race but I I like I like that the races the especially the stage races are not massive because you can actually get to know every single person and there's great opportunity for you when the the race field is not that big that you can get some new friends and you can actually get uh, close to to the people around you so I like the fact that they are not uh, bigger because it makes it um intimate yeah it does and I I like that I like that you done pretty well in that race though didn't you yeah, so it was my first stage race and I won it. <laughs> <laughs> I was also surprised about that because I um, I signed up for it and the first two months I was shocked. I, I was, what am I doing? I just signed up for a 230 kilometers self-sufficient stage race <laughs> in the Amazon no jungle. No alcohol involved. <laughs> no alcohol this time. No alcohol <laughs> this time. I just saw an ad on Facebook and... I, I I couldn't stop thinking about the race. So I knew with myself, okay, I have to give it a go. What's the worst thing that can happen? And it went well. I loved it. So after these big ultra races, then, you know, a couple of hours later, you're buzzing again. You know, all the pain sort of disappears somehow. Yes. <laughs> like, where did your mind go to after that? Because that's pretty epic. You know, that's opened your own limits up as well on what you can do and what you can achieve. Yes. That's an exciting time. Yeah, definitely. So um, what happened, I when I won the, the Jungle Ultra, I had to rush back to Denmark because at that time I, I had a job as a teacher and I had to go back because my students um, 
uh, had the exam. So I had a crazy week doing the jungle ultra and then two days of, um, of, of exam with my students. Um, and after that, I kind of had time to sit down and think about what happened. And I got a lot of response from the Danish sports community and sponsors kind of showed up. Um, so I decided to quit my job as a teacher and then give it a go to be like a semi-professional runner um, because I, I, I could see I could get the support uh, the financial support to to do it so um, I quit my job exciting um, was it Kilimanjaro that came next the FKT uh, yeah you can say that I did the um, in 2017 I did the Transalpine run um, so a seven seven days run from Germany through Austria Switzerland and we ended up in Italy uh, that was a great race, by the way. And three weeks after, I did the half MDS in Puerto Ventura, and then I, um, I, yeah, I went to Kilimanjaro with um, a good friend from Denmark, Josephine, and um, another trail runner, Simon Gramstrup from from Denmark, also with the the goal to to beat um, the FKT of fastest ascent on Kilimanjaro. How, how did that come up? How did you come up with that idea? There had to be alcohol involved in that one. <laughs> you might think that, but uh, it was actually my friend Josephine's idea. So we we met in April in 2017 in a race. Um, we, we just knew each other from the trail community. And a few days after we did a race um, in April, she sent a message to me on Facebook and said, Hi, Christina. Me and two guys want to go to Kilimanjaro. We want to do a faster trek than normal. Do you want to come? Then we will be two guys and two girls. Um, do you want to come? And I, I remember I read the message and I immediately thought, oh, this is exciting, but hang on. Just think about it a few days. And I, I waited a few days to answer her back, but suddenly I found myself searching online. How fast can you ascend Kilimanjaro and I saw the world record uh, was eight hours and 32 minutes by a German runner uh, Anne-Marie Flammerstedt and I did the mistake uh, you can't do when we talk about mountains and fast running or fast walking or, or well FKTs in mountain running so I I did the average pace um, on the world record, and I was I was not impressed by the average pace. But I was I didn't know what I was talking about. So I wrote back to Josephine. Okay, I'll go. I just have like one. Um, what do you say? I, I want one to condition. go. One condition exactly. I want to go. Um, but one condition, we beat the world record. <laughs> and then I, then I think she had to think um, a few days. But she, answers, I, I she like, answered. Um, I would like to have yeah. been a fly on the wall when she read that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> me too. Me I too. Mean, opening that email and say, what? <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> being from so, Denmark, you know, that must have been, that's quite a challenge. You know, 180 meters is your highest ascent. Mm -hmm. um, like... And what height is Kilimanjaro? Is it 
so it's nearly 6,000 meters. It's 5,895 meters above sea level. So um, you start at one of the entrance, which is about 1,600 meters above sea level. So it's like 4,265 meters of, of uh, elevation you do in one go. Yeah. Did you take any time to climatize? Because near the top, it can get pretty... Yeah, I did. I did. Uh, we went down to Mosho in Tanzania two weeks before the attempt, and we did a normal, very slow trek to the top to acclimatize. So we spent around a week on Kilimanjaro to acclimatize. And, you know, if I had the time and if I had the money, I would have spent more time on mm. Kilimanjaro. And I knew Karl Eklov and Killian, well, Killian, I. I think he's like always really acclimatized, but the the male record, um, which is so by Carl Eckler, I wrote something about he spent a lot of time on Kilimanjaro to wait for the perfect gap, the perfect uh, weather window, and also to acclimatize. But um, hey, um, a week went very well for us. So, what did your friends do when you were doing that? Were they able to keep up with you, or, or were they there as support crew? Um, so we started, me and Josephine started the, uh, the, twen- the 23rd of February together at six o'clock in the morning. We had a local support team. We had Simon Gremstrup um, to run and a lot of it is fast walking. Um, so we stayed together um, and they kind of helped us with the route up. And so all we had to do was you know, to run or walk. Yes. So me and Josephine, we kept together the first two hours. And then I just felt that I had more energy. Um, so I, I took off and we were separated from that point. And Josephine, she, she really fought well, but she, she got, um, she got symptoms of the high altitude sickness. So she, she didn't manage to go all the way to the top. She almost went there, but not not quite to to the top. Yeah, because a week's not very long, really, is it, to climatize? Well, it's not really. Like, um, how does altitude affect you in these type of events or races? So you, I could definitely feel the high altitude after, especially after four thousand meters. So you can you can see your heart rate is higher than normal. You can see you you get out of breath really um, well a lot faster than you used to, and you just get tired, you know. And it's it's um, you really have to to be sense about what you're doing. You really have to be smart about what you're doing. So uh, at one point you get a little bit of headache, and you're kind of worried. Oh my God, is it high altitude sickness? Should I? keep on pushing on or should I lay a little back but I want the record also so I can't keep too much back so uh, your body sends you all kind of signals because it really doesn't want you to be physical active in <laughs> in in these sort of uh, in these sort of conditions but um, I remember when I when I reached the ridge uh, on Kilimanjaro and I knew I only had 150 meters of ascent back I knew that I was going to beat the record and I was I was knackered I was so tired but when I realized I'm going to beat this record I managed to run on the ridge uh, to the top of uh, of Kilimanjaro so 
your body is just amazing. It's amazing what you can do with your body. It is, you always have that extra gear in, in your body, if that makes sense. It's, that's, that's your amazing. mind's a very powerful thing, like, isn't it? It's controlling yes. your body and trying to protect it. And it knows when to let you go or like even those ne negative thoughts, that's just your mind trying to protect mm -hmm. you and trying to slow yeah. you down. Yeah. And it really does become your biggest competitor, really, doesn't it? It does. Your it becomes self. your, yes. Um, so it can become your big, biggest competitor, but it can also become your best friend and um, your best tool to make a better performance. And I find that, I find that very interesting on how you can um, like tune your mind into being your best friend, even in tough and hard conditions. And that's all part of the mental training that you do as well and, and the visualization and things like that. Preparing your mind for that so that when you come to those situations, your mind is comfortable with that because it's already yes. seen the outcome and the outcome is positive because you visualize that. Yes, yes. And in terms of when you think of Kilimanjaro, I, I, um, you don't always know what's going on with the, with your body when you enter 5,000 meters. A, a lot of things can happen. But um, if you are prepared, okay, this is going to be really, really hard. And instead of being surprised that, oh, damn it, now it's, now it's hard, that you kind of embrace that and maybe be thankful. Okay, it could have been hard two hours ago, but it's it's now and now I have to embrace it and make 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 the most of it. It will be hard at some point. You know it's you gonna know. hurt. Like there's no way you're gonna yes. run up Kilimanjaro <laughs> no. as fast as you can for an FKT. Um, so you did all that training on the treadmill as well, which is pretty epic. Like so, what did that look like for you in a week? You must have just been climbing as much as possible. Um, well, I tried to have one. Uh, one session on a treadmill uh, per week, one long session. So I could, I remember I, uh, I stood in the gym. I have my own treadmill now, but at that time I stood in the gym uh, with the elevation and I stood in front of a TV watching sports and I stood there for three, four hours. And that was, that was really mental challenging, but I thought my, my mind was on the FKT. So if, I can't do three, four hours on the treadmill. I can't do the FKT, but if I can't do the three, four hours on the treadmill, I can do the FKT. Yeah, because you're fine, you're fine tuning your mental mm -hmm. um, strength as well as that, aren't you? Yes. So you, yes. Mo you moved off that then and went into the desert. Then you love these stage races. Is there was it the environment that was sort of attracting you to that? You've already done the humidity. Yeah, so I did some cold races. I did some um, you know, high humidity races, some races in, in the hide. So I, I had a look on the races I've done and I kind of thought, what am I missing? What's, uh, what, what do I want to do that I haven't done yet? And I knew the races that um, BTU organizes are, are very well organized. And um, I, I, uh, I had a look at the desert the Desert Ultra, and I saw, okay, it's 250-kilometer stage race. It's in Namibia. It's uh, it's going to be hot. Uh, so I signed up for it. And, well, the fact is, 
it was a lot harder than I expected. So on stage three, four and five, um, at midday, it was around 55 degrees Celsius. And that's just, that's so hot. You know, I can't explain how hot it is. Um, and I remember it was a bit windy and you kind of think, isn't it nice for, it, for you to be a bit windy, but it was not. It was like a hairdryer <laughs> right next to your face um, with really hot. Um, You're selling it really well here, by the way. <laughs> um, How did you keep so, yourself cool and something like that? Um, so it, it's also self-sufficient. So um, you, you just have the water stations every 10 kilometers and the water is not cold. It's, it's just warm. So you have to be sensible, first of all, to drink enough water. Um, but you also have to cover your body so you don't get the sun directly on your body. Um, and then you have the, do you also call, call it a buff? Um, yeah. Like when you have a new neck. So I brought two buffs with me and I made them wet all the time. And uh, they could... They could cool your body a little bit, but, you know, everything, everything was hot. Um, but Sounds like hard work. It, it was a really hard race. It was, um, and it challenged me a lot mental because, you know, when it's 55 degrees hot, it kind of, I, I worked a lot during the race trying to keep my motivation to keep on going when, when it's that hot. So I learned a lot really a lot from from that race i did do you think that through these the last few races that you've just talked about and the fkt attempt that you're people talk about the pain cave and do you think that you're going you're developing that the whole time going through these races so at the end of that desert 250 kilometers um every time you come out of one of these races you get mentally stronger or go to a different level yes i i think that because if I can get through 250 kilometers in the desert with 50, 55 or 50 degrees, if I can do that, I can, yeah. I can do many, I can do many <laughs> things. I can do many things. Yes. Did you do anything um, to prepare for the heat? Like saunas or anything like that? Uh, yes, I did. I did. And at that point, I also um, got my treadmill back in my house. So I tried to make my garage as hot as possible and I did um, and then do the workout on the treadmill I also uh, did a lot of spinning with my well with rain jackets on and stuff like that so I I tried to get used to uh, the feeling of being really really hot um, so that that was how that was how I prepared it does take a lot of discipline to do that doesn't it like you know because if you're putting on your full kit and your clothes it's so uncomfortable it's yes. great just to rip it all off and actually go for a, an easy run yes and that's very tempting and that's where I might be a bit stubborn so I would hate myself if I took my rain jacket off and I would start to doubt myself if I take my rain jacket off doing a 20 kilometers run back in Denmark then I, how could you ever finish the, the desert ultra? So I, when I set up my mind to, I want to train like this, I want to prepare like this, I, I stick with my plan. That's pretty cool. The Bob Graham round in the same year as well. Like that was interesting. <laughs> yes. What drew you towards that? 
Uh, so I I went to visit a friend called um, Mark in England. Uh, that's three years ago. I found a book on her shelf by Tobias Moose, 50 Races to Do Before You Die. Oh, uh, no. That's one book they do not want you to get your hands on. Yes. So... I, you know, it's it's easy to uh, swipe through the pages. Amazing, amazing photos, by the way. But um, yes, so I read about Bob Graham, the one thing he didn't do, and uh, I noted that in in my uh, in my head. But I was not ready to do it. And uh, then I bought the book Feed Into the Clouds. <laughs> and when I read that, I was just I had to do that. But it was only last year i kind of sat down and thought okay maybe i'm ready to do the bob graham so how did that go because that's quite a traditional race isn't it yes so it's um so i've never been to the lake district before so i saw a lot of their uh, youtube videos i read a lot of their uh, blogs about the bob graham so i i sat by in my house back in denmark back in flat denmark and decided okay let's do this <laughs> and i tried to gather a crew um uh, from denmark and uh, i got in contact to some of my british friends trail running friends who who helped me with the logistics stuff. And then I went to the Lake District two weeks before my Bob Graham attempt. And I remember <laughs> I did my first run to, um, uh, well, from Keswick. Uh, I, I just went to the first peak and I was like, oh my God, what have I done? What have I, what have I signed up to? Um, and the following weekend, I... Uh, I, I managed to um, to crew on another Bob Graham round. So we did leg one and we were meant to do leg two, but we actually had to stop after leg one because the terrain was so tricky. It was slippery. The the elevation, it was, it was great, you know, but it was also really, really tough. So what was the weather I, like? <laughs> Um, the weather when we crewed the Bob Graham was, um, was actually okay. We started at 12 o'clock in the evening and it, it was a bit foggy and the team, um, the, so the guy who did the Bob Graham was called Simon and the team around him. So there was a guy in charge of the navigation, um, and me and Mark were just, you know, pacing and there was another guy as well. They had problem with the navigation because you can so easily get lost when it's when it's foggy in in the lake district so um that that was that was tricky but it was it was a great experience but i really underestimated the lake district i i really really underestimated it yeah because you don't have these nice soft trails to follow isn't it there's a lot of bogland grassland slippery slopes yes um, yes when you read the book feet in the clouds you can definitely relate to that then after doing the Bob Green. <laughs> I can, I can. Um, so two days before my attempt, the pacers and the helpers kind of started to drop out. And it was a bit um, difficult to be, well, a Danish person in Keswick. And all my helpers started to, to drop out. But luckily, um, some of the local fell runners, they just... 
they heard okay they heard that I was about to do the Bob Graham round and um, some cool local runners uh, Ellis Bland actually so his uncle is the famous um, Billy Bland he stepped in and he crewed me on leg one and leg three so I experienced like the the fell running community in the Lake District because people just will drop their plans for the weekend and came to help me do the Bob Graham. That that was really amazing to experience and, and to be a part of that. It's quite empowering, isn't it? You've talked about that fell running sort of community. Mm-hmm. Um, people know the hardship on what you're going through. Yes. You know, they can't do enough for you to try and help support you through that. Yeah. And it's quite amazing. Like you only get it, especially in the rounds, you really do see it in the likes of the rounds or some mm-hmm. of the longer sort of in- endurance races. Um, what happened after that then? So that was in 2018. Sorry. What time? 19. Sorry. Oh, was that 2019 you done? Bob yes. Graham? That, that was last summer. Yes. Wow. Um, did you make it under the 24 hours? I did. I did. So uh, I did it in 18 hours and 45 minutes. Uh, yes. Um, that was um, phenomenal. Uh, yes, I, I'm very proud and very pleased about that. That was uh, that was my first visit to the Lake District. Um, I I had, you know, my day in the Lake District on the Bob Graham round. I loved every second of it. I I had some mental challenges on leg four. It was really really long, but the rest of it, I loved it. I loved it and. This is not my last Bob Graham round. It's definitely not my last. I know I can I I know I can do it faster, but I just want to get back there. Yeah, brilliant. So that was in the summer, two thousand and nineteen. Then we're gonna come yes. to the seven marathons in seven continents in seven days. So the world major marathon challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, how did that come onto your radar? So um I did another race that this organizer does in uh, Chile, in the Atacama Desert. I did that back in 2015. So I kind of knew what the organizers was, um, was well, well had on of different races. And I saw this World Marathon Challenge in, maybe it was actually after Kilimanjaro, I kind of, let Richard Donovan, the organizer, I wrote him a mail that said I was interested in the race, but it's really expensive mm. um, to participate in the race. So when I came back from the desert in November in 2018, he actually invited me to do it in 2019. So I also did it in 2019. And there was some strong competition with uh, Susanna Jill, uh, a sub three hours marathon from England. And also Stephanie Schickel, the 24 hours road champion in France. And then there was me as a trail multi-stage runner. And we had a great, great battle last year. But um, the problem was I was um, I was only second. And um, <laughs> The problem was I was only second. Yes. Beautifully put. Um, so I came, yeah, I came back to Denmark and I, I really quickly wrote on my blog that, you know, I, I hate being second and I think I can do that better. So I got invited back to do it this year in 2020 
Um, and my aim was to to beat the record of the fast average time that now Susanna Gill from England has set had set last year. So that was that was my main focus this year to set the new record. Yeah. So how did you break that down then? Because were you able to plan? Because I'm assuming it would be extremely complicated to take a look at the likes of Cape Town or the Antarctica and try and judge what times and paces you would need to achieve. Is it just a, an ongoing sort of assess where you are and what needs to be done the next day? If you're setting a, an overall time? Um, well, a little, a little thing of, uh, of both, if you can say that. So... I did my homework here back in Denmark trying to, so the fastest average time I was about to beat was three hours and 28 minutes. So I, I did some math on the different races um, and I knew that Antarctica will, of course, be the slowest one. Um, so I tried to do, to do some different, um, what do you call that, scenarios? scenarios. Yep. Yes, um, that I could take with me and then I could adapt on how my results would be but um it, it started off pretty interesting actually because it was planned that the Antarctica was the first race and and I made a strategy that as a trail runner Antarctica is like my home soil because that's a terrain I can relate to that's not road running and last year I won on Antarctica by six minutes down to Susanna Jill but I knew I can do that better uh, I could run that faster, but how do you prepare to run seven marathons in seven days? It's 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 yeah. really hard to to um, to um, get the balance right. Yes, exactly. But um, I knew this year that I would also want to take some risk uh, to to make the record. So my strategy was to do an almost all-out marathon on the first one in Antarctica to have my gap as big as possible down to the rest of the competitors, but also to, well, do a marathon quite close to my average time. But then it happened that the weather condition uh, in Antarctica was really bad. So our flight got cancelled two times. And then the organisers decide, let's start in Cape Town instead. And, oh, that was... Um, because it's, it it's quite a gamble, isn't it, really? Because the reason why they select Antarctica first, because you have to wait for that window to appear. Mm -hmm. So that's they don't want to have it second, third or fourth, because if the window's not there, then nobody's going to make the cutoff for the seven days. So quite a gamble. Yes, it Donovan. was. Yes, yes. But I think he had a plan. So after our flight was cancelled two times, he got us a new plane a Russian cargo plane, and I think it's called an illusion. And the Russian pilots, they can fly in all sorts of conditions. So he had that going on, but we had to, you know, we had to start the, the event somehow. And so we started off in Cape Town, and that's a flat road marathon. And so I, I quickly had to change my strategy and I decided to, you know, take another risk, and it it might be a bit, um, what's the right word? Ambitious. Bold. Yeah, ambitious, or maybe bold, or maybe not really wise, but I chose to do an almost all-out marathon. So I did a 310 marathon, and um, I... 
I did actually my my personal best, and I I was eight minutes in front of Jessica Jones, the the American runner, uh, which I uh, well had the so closest. That was a PB marathon was, time for you. Yes, yes. <laughs> on day one. On day one. Yeah. So yeah. You, you rolled the dice then, and you thought you'll take it as an opportunity to actually bank some time here. Yes, yes, and I ran with. Um, uh, a good guy called Luke Wigman. I think you had him on yeah. the podcast. Yeah, great guy, really great guy. We sort of um, Luke's a legend, like ah, uh, he is. Yeah, I I didn't knew him before I met him at the World Marathon Challenge. He's just he's such a nice guy. A um, bit strange humor, but really a really <laughs> lovely guy. <laughs> he's from England, so, of course. He's got strange humor. <laughs> yeah, I hope he's listening to this. But um, we sort of. Um, well, had the same page and we got into chatting about the bot Graham and he told me about his his history and his Afghanistan and all the sorts of things he has done. So um, he um, he's, he's just a great guy. Um, so he helped me a lot in, in Cape Town. And um, yes, the, the, the next morning, or the, the day after we were set to go to Antarctica, and I remember when we stepped out of the plane, the weather was horrible. I've, yeah. The wind was just crazy. I've, it, it was just crazy. I'm not, I'm, I'm not like the biggest person, but if I stood still, the wind could easily just take me away. Uh, that so what, was... what are the conditions like in Cape Town, the weather or temperature? Um, so we started off at 7 o'clock in the evening. And it was very windy, um, but other than that, the temperature was fine. It, it dropped a bit when the sun set, but. Um, but was it warm in Cape Town? I'm trying to. It was yes. Trying to understand, you know, because it's quite a shock to your body then coming from that environment. Yeah, yeah. So I think it was around 20, 25 degrees Celsius in, in Cape Town. Uh, I don't know the exact temperature in Antarctica, but I've seen. Um, I did some talks about my trip and I searched online that the chill factor was down to minus 35 degrees and it was it was chilly of, of difference there within about 12 hours yeah how long yeah. was the flight then uh, the flight was five and a half hours five and a half hours what did you do that evening or what did you eat to try and help recovery um, 310 was quite heavy a f- you know, a flat, fast marathon is quite taxing on the body. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, I So we we were back in, so after the Cape Town Marathon, we were in our hotel. So I ate a lot of uh, pasta. I had some a lot of meat with protein to build up the body. Um, but after that, we were basically just on the plane, actually. So luckily, there's good food on the plane but I also had a lot of protein bars and different kind of food and nuts and stuff like that with me from from back home because you know you just have to eat enough and you can you just eat all the time all the time it's fat's very important as well isn't it yes you need the energy for the next day like Yes. So basically, of course, you just you just can't eat rubbish food. But I would say that you have to eat as much as possible. And it's better to eat like chocolate and candy or whatever you can get your hands on than not eating. 
um, because that this week and the amount of calories you burn and energy, it's just crazy. Were you tracking that at all? Were you wearing a heart rate monitor and trying to get some idea or anything like that? Yes, so I had a heart rate monitor on. Um, I had some problem with measuring my um, my um, my heart rate, um, but on Strava, um, for example, you you can see how many calories you burn, and I I was trying to pick that up so I won't be uh, I won't be missing too many calories. So stepping off the plane in the Antarctica, that was a bit of a shock. I was <laughs> yes. like, oh my god, like a bit of panic, sort of. A wave of panic goes across all the competitors because um, that was a tough, tough race. I remember Luke talking about that. Um, how did that go for you then? It went really well, actually. So they they changed the course to a three kilometers loop, so we don't have to. So we didn't have to run in a full wind. Is it called that? Um, headwind. Headwind. Sorry, um, headwind too much because that could easily get get dangerous. So they changed the course. But um, I was I was pretty confident, even though the weather was very extreme. But many of the other participants were were nervous. They were, but I I felt all right, and I started off in a group with Luke and some of the other fast guys. And after 16 kilometers, I just left the group, even though we helped each other a lot, like running uh, in. Yeah. In, sort of drafting in a, off each other yes drafting off each other that's right but um i i could just feel that i had more energy that i could run faster um so i did and after 25 kilometers i took over uh juan Twing, who was um who was the 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 male leader he did a 258 marathon the day before in, in cape town so i took over him and i with three laps to go, I I lapped Jessica Jones and I won I, I won the Antarctica outright, and wow. that was <laughs> you beat yeah, the guys as well. I did, I did. Um, your did. time was um, three hours, and I can't remember if it's fifty five or fifty eight, fifty five, I think. Yes. Yeah, that was pretty phenomenal. Like and. Like that must have really built your confidence as well. Yes, yes. So I was I was in the lead with thirty eight minutes down to Jessica, and I was I was on track to beat the average time because this Antarctica race with that weather could easily I could easily have missed the chance of breaking the record. Yes, yeah, so your gamble the day before was starting to pay off already pretty early mm-hmm. on. Yeah. Um, your aspirations obviously were to try and break the woman's world record. You had your average down three twenty eight. Um, did your mind start switching a bit after this Antarctica race then? Because you've actually beaten this, you've won this race outright. Um, mm-hmm. Did you think about the potential of maybe at this early stage of actually winning the whole event outright, which had never been uh, done by a woman before? Uh, not really, not really. I knew I had an advantage in Antarctica because I don't quite a lot of races in extreme conditions and I like the the tricky terrain so I I was just concentrating about the female record I was not thinking about competing with the guys no I wasn't (laughs) so Australia was up next yes like that sounds so extreme to go from Antarctica to Australia yeah 
Um, I think one of the advantages I had uh, when I did the race last year, I I was not really concerned about all the logistics stuff, and uh, it it calmed me down a lot that I knew how the schedule was, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so yes, the next one was in in Perth, and we had to do the marathon during the night time, and I um, I fell into a group again with Luke and some of the other guys, and Jessica was in the group as well, um, and we just I'm not used to running in in groups and do all this drafting, but it's actually really fun, and you get to <laughs> get to talk with the other, and suddenly you're just 25 kilometers in the race. Uh, and Jessica, she took off, um, and I, I remember I was thinking, so should I follow or should I stay in the group? And I chose to stay in the group and try to, you know, save as much energy. This is only marathon number three, so I stayed in the group, and um, I think I finished in three eighteen, and Jessica won this stage with um, two or three minutes. Um, yes. Yeah, that was that was a pretty good indicator of where you were, wasn't it, after the Antarctica? Because you took a couple of gambles there, you know, running three ten and then winning the Antarctica race, and then running a three eighteen. You know that that makes it feel like it's sort of clicking into place a bit, yes. doesn't it? Because that yes. race in Australia was going to be a tester on how your body was going to react to those two first events, one yes. very fast and one very extreme. Mm-hmm. So 318 was fantastic like did you you know you haven't really got much time to recover if something goes wrong in your plan um had anything sort of gone wrong at this stage or any sort of major errors that you made no everything went perfectly after plan uh and my legs feel it's so weird isn't it you do three marathons and your legs actually feel fine that is just crazy actually um, so I, I took my time to also think about, okay, this is going great. And that also give you the belief that this, this can, I'm doing it. I'm, I'm on my way to, to break the record. It's a great journey as well, isn't it? Putting all the running aside and all the targets, like it's an absolutely fantastic thing to do, even just to travel to seven continents in seven days forget about the running but to do it with this group of people yeah so the the group of people this year but also last year was amazing i I really um i really enjoy that you spend so much time with um with with people um but i don't know next time i'll do seven marathons and seven continents and seven months (laughs) (laughs) it's hard work like australia then next place dubai Mm-hmm. Dubai is yes. very hot. You know, Dubai is very hot, and we came. So we were a bit delayed because all of the Antarctica and the Cape Town stuff. So we were a bit delayed, and we started off in nighttime. So it was dark, but the humidity was so high, really high. And my strategy was actually the same as the day before: um, just run and lay in the group with Luke some of the other fast guys and Jessica and the exact same thing happened Uh, Jessica after 22 or 23 kilometers she set off uh, and I let her go but um, around 
I kept in a group with Luke and around 36, 37 kilometers, uh, we were on a 320 pace and Luke said, uh, Christina, can, can you take the lead? I'm getting tired. So I raised the pace, um, jumped in ahead of Luke, and then I, I don't know if you have this in English, but directly translated from Danish, I had diamonds in my legs and I just set off and Luke couldn't follow. And after two, three kilometers, I saw Jessica. So I, um, I um, ran past Jessica with, I don't know, 1.5 kilometers to, um, before the finish line. And I won it in 3.17 something. That was... You must have been elated yeah. for that then, because that, yes. that was a proper race. Yes, I love it? that. Yes, it was. <laughs> I um, Yeah, every time I think of that race, I just smile because, you know, being in a group, I took the choice of staying in the group. And then after 36 kilometers, I just felt all this energy in my body on my race number four, um, 36 kilometers in. That's usually where you get a bit tired. But um, to experience that your body and mind is really working with you, that's a great, great, um, that's a great, great thing to, to experience. Yeah, you're just really adapting. Like, you know, I've done some races, the likes of CCC and Chamonix, and I spent a lot of time on my kit, but it was one race in one environment. Like, I can only imagine what it must have taken to try and get your kit right for each of those different environments. Did it change much? Um, when you think of the Antarctica to Dubai, um, I'm assuming it's an expensive kit bag. Uh, yes, you can say that, but <laughs> I have a lot of I have a lot of kit that I could um, reuse from some of the other events. But yes, Antarctica was much colder than I thought, so I basically just put all my kit on. <laughs> um, and in Dubai, I had almost nothing on. So one of the changes I made from last year to this year was to um, maybe I'm saying this wrong, but to strip down as much as possible. Yeah. I hope that doesn't no, sound wrong. Right. <laughs> um, so usually I don't like to show like my skin on the stomach or, or, or stuff like that. But I try to um, have clothes on that weighed as little as possible because if it was just maybe two seconds that different differs me from the world record i will not i could not live with it if it was i was wearing a heavier t-shirt or something so in in dubai and in fortaleza in brazil i was actually just wearing a little top yeah it sounds like you just wanted to get the job done and give yourself the best opportunity because if you were if you missed it you were going back in 2021 and you didn't want to do that <laughs> but yeah you, you can say that i guess i can't keep doing the world marathon challenge <laughs> year after year after year <laughs> so madrid was up next how was your yeah. body feeling at the starting line of madrid because the flying alone now is, t is taxing your body along with running exceptional times and racing and conditions and environment and all, and all of that. How's your body feeling at the start of Italy? Surprisingly well, surprisingly well. I, I could still do my warm-up routine and I could still walk normal down the stairs on the bus. Um, and I, it's just weird, actually, because last year, 
I was I was knackered in Perth. I was knackered on on the third race, but this year my body really coped well, and I've really I really look forward to Madrid because we we were to race on an uh, old Formula One track, three point eight kilometers uh, circuit, and it had two steep inclines and in total of five hundred meters uh, meters ascent of um, of the of the full marathon, and um, I, w- I was looking forward to that because that's what I do, actually. I, I run on hills. You knew that would give you a bit of an advantage then against everybody else? Yes, um, yes. Were you, were you thinking about everybody else? I know it was important to at least win the women's group for you, but was the time still your main focus? I was focused on the time. Um, I, Throughout. The, the, the main goal for me was to beat the record. I didn't have to win... The, the races as long as I I got the record and I I was the, yeah. the the final winner, but I also was kind of curious uh, of what my body could do. But I I didn't want to take risk because you know if you set off too fast and you screw up one marathon, mm. if you screw up your know, marathon number five, then it's a bit bitty. Well, pretty big chance that you will also screw up number six and number seven, and then the record is gone. So it's a fine line between, you know, do it while you can. This is your opportunity to to make the most out of it, but also be clever and wise about um, getting the record. Yeah, so you do have to stay very disciplined then. Yes, yes. And staying focused on what the actual goal was. But you did still come first in Italy. I did. <laughs> um, yeah. What sort of time did you hit in Italy? Um, I had a um, so I was aiming for three twenty, and I went in three nineteen forty eight. So it was it was perfect. It, it was perfect. So it it was hard to keep um, a solid average pace per kilometer because you had the up and the downhills, but the the final average was just perfect was yeah it sounds like you were having a dream event actually sorry it sounds like you were having a dream event everything was yes. just sort of clicking into place and yeah yeah especially how your body was adapting mm-hmm. um one thing that i think i found on the longer races sort of back-to-back um training sessions really help those longer endurances but when you're doing things like multi-stage races and things like that it really is getting your body to adapt to things like this because it's really just a seven-day stage race, really, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yes. And your body, it's the pace which makes it amazing, I think, when your body's able to push out a marathon and adapt at that level. Um, it goes against what a lot of the textbooks will tell you. Yes. Doesn't it? And yes. I think, were you surprising yourself as you were coming to this stage of the race? Um, yes and no. I was surprised that my body was coping that well. And uh, I, I was a bit like, what's the reason for, uh, how can it be that I'm coping this well this year when last year I, I was really I was really knackered and feeling very, very sore. So um, I, I, I was trying to think of what, what's the reason, what have I done differently? But um, the, I've, I've, and then again, I was not surprised because I knew I was really 
well prepared. And even though I ran a bit faster than I could, I always kept eyes on my on my heart rate. So I knew I was not pushing it too much. Do you think um, familiarity with the course and the events sort of helped your body let you go a bit more as well? Knowing, I think so, yes. Knowing that you completed it the year before. So even though it was going to be tough and hard, well, you, you knew you were going to complete it based on yes. your confidence yes. from last year. Um, so you yes. went from Italy to Brazil. That's quite a long flight, is it? I'm assuming. Um, yeah, I think it's... Um, I, can't, I can't really remember, but it is, of course, a long flight. And um, and before before we did the Madrid Marathon, Richard Donovan, the organizer, said, OK, listen, we are pretty late, so we have 50 hours to finish the last three marathons. So we did three marathons <laughs> in 50 hours. Um, and in, my in Italy, mind... Italy, Brazil and Miami. <laughs> Like yes. 50 hours. Yes. Um, and my mind started to spin a bit about, okay, what if we get another delay? Then I'll be doing seven marathons in seven continents in seven point one day, and then the record is not on. Um, I I tried not to worry about that, but I I was I it was a bit hard not to think about the fact that maybe the record is not even valid. Yeah, but that bit was out of your control, wasn't it? So I suppose you yes. had to bring your mind back and focus on mm-hmm. the next day, which was Brazil. Um, it sounds bizarre <laughs> um, to go through that. So it's like Cape Town, Ast- Antarctica, Australia, Dubai, Madrid, and now Brazil. Um, and you've done phenomenally again in Brazil, so you're still feeling nice and fresh at the starting line. Um, yeah. What was the weather like in Brazil? Hot. <laughs> And we had to start eleven o'clock midday. So the bizarre part was the the Fortaleza guys. They did a phenomenal job organizing and do the setup for the marathons, for the marathon. But no one was out there because it was kind of like siesta because it was too hot and the humidity was crazy. And it you really had to be clever about your water intake your energy intake and your pace and I, I struggled the first half marathon I stuck to Jessica so she's from Alabama where they have hot summers so I I stopped with Jessica and she helped me a lot but after 20 22 kilometers she said to me she well she she basically said to me I have to uh, lower my pace um, and when she said that I was, oh, I was a bit like okay what should I do? Should I lower my pace too? or And how much will she lower her pace? Or should I try to keep on? I, I was really struggling. But then I just thought, I have to keep on. I have to keep my pace up to be on track for the record. Um, so she kind of laid back. And um, I started to overtake some of the other guys. And I found myself in the outright lead because the... The, the male runner, uh, Cheng Hong, he, um, he dropped out of the race, unfortunately, because he was uh, injured. Um, a big, big shame. I feel so sorry for him. But then I found myself in the outright leading position and I had the lead bike and that gave me just a lot of energy to, yeah, that's the mental thing again, right? Um, you, so, sound, you sound so English when you say that. <laughs> really? <laughs> you, 
you're saying you're you're hoping to polish up on your English. You, you've got the accent down to a T. Ah, that's great. I'm glad to hear. I think. <laughs> so that so was yes, amazing. Um, like, so you got the outright um, lead pole position over the men yes. and the women, and you knew that the world um, record was in sight. Mm-hmm. So tell me about that evening after Brazil. Like, how did you feel? Like, did you feel like anxious? Do you have to do anything more, or, or were you able to keep a real disciplined, well, focused mind on what had to be yes, done? I, I was, I was calm. I was disciplined, and I was structured. I knew I could do a free fifty marathon in Miami and still beat the record. But you know, when you do a marathon or you do some of these events, things can quickly go wrong if you take if you take things too easily or if you forget something or you lose your focus. You know, you can easily lose mm-hmm. lose um, thirty minutes and five kilometers if if something goes wrong. So, I really try to stay focused on. Okay, you have a big lead. You're really on track for the record but you can't afford to make any mistakes whatsoever. So I tried to put thing, the thing that I was, um, that, you know, I, I, w- I was going to get the record, but I tried to put that on the side um, and try to deal with the last marathon as professional as possible. But fact was, I was so tired. I was knackered, you know. The, the Brazil Marathon, in those hot conditions, they just took every, it took everything out of me. And I was probably a bit dehydrated. I lost a lot of energy. And, you know, 4.30 in the morning in Miami, I was ready to do the last marathon. I just had no energy. But, you know, if, if I felt the same way here back in Denmark, I would probably just lay in my bed and not do any <laughs> training and call in sick and cancel all meetings but you know we did a marathon we all did a marathon and we were totally naked that's that's incredible you know yeah it's very empowering as well so what did that feel like crossing the finish line then because you knew you won that race you came outright yes yes um everybody is quaking in your wake now at this stage um You don't three three hours thirty one minutes. Uh, thirty two minutes, I 32s. think. Yes. Um. So I can honestly say I the, I can't remember much of the details of the actual race. I knew there was some confusing about the distance. Uh, first, it was too short, and then they made the change, and then it was too long. So there was some sort of confusing on the actual distance when we did the race. But I was so much. Um, beside myself and you can say that because I was so tired the one thing I could think of was to move one leg uh, across the other so I, I can't tell any details from that race but I do remember like four kilometers before the finish line when I actually just woke up and thought hey I'm going to beat this record so the last four kilometers I, I managed to raise my pace to a full 45 minutes um uh, pace per kilometer and I, I crossed the finish line and it's it was just incredible um that feeling that something you've worked so hard for for such a long time finally happens 
it's that's just incredible and I on the one hand you can't quite believe it this you are you actually did it and on the other hand I'm like thank god it's over (laughs) (laughs) but it must have been quite emotional though it sounds emotional yes um real amazing then to find out you'd beat the men as well so that was really the cherry on the cake yes I can't quite believe that you know it hasn't really how do you say that sunken in yet is that the right term um but I guess I can say due this coronavirus I had a lot of time to think about it and to get it really to sink in and also to do this podcast and do interviews and write stuff down helps me to understand what really happened yeah that's amazing because there has never been a woman who's won it outright um prior to you um winning it this year it seems to be the trend at the minute so we had um, maggie goodrell on the show Mm -hmm. she won the backyard ultra um, Yasmin yeah. Paris, who knocked 11 hours off the spine race last year. Yes, amazing. And it really seems, you know, your win there sort of had that type of impact. Oh, here we go again. <laughs> they're, t- <laughs> they're showing us men how to do that. What do you think is, because I've asked quite a few people this question. We had Nikki Spinks on um, the podcast a few weeks ago as well. And there seems to be this movement of women who are now actually really becoming competitive with the men and um, mm-hmm. what do you think is causing that do you think there's anything particular because there is a shift that's happened over the last three or four years yes so um you know men have been into running many more years than women have and um the latest years um when you know, women have been running for many years, but men have been running for long, for many more years. But um, it's been more normal to see women in ultra races, in extreme races, in trail running. So we are just more females, you know. Um, so that's the one thing. But I also, um, I, I think it's hard to generalize, if that makes sense, and tell there's something different about these type of women and these type of men. But um, as, well, one of my heroes is, well, Jasmine Paris uh, just had a baby and to win the spine upright, uh, that's that's just phenomenal. But, you know, well, women... 11 hours. Yeah, <laughs> that's, hours. Yes, that is just crazy. But, you know, uh, but it does give women, lot, it does give moms, people... yeah gives people a lot of belief though doesn't it when you see the likes of jasmine doing that and yourself doing that or maggie goodrell yes um, it makes other people have belief in themselves i think yes you're totally right I, I was just about to say that when when one woman does something incredible she inspires many other women to have you know to believe in the self in themselves and to believe in their project and just you know to 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 go for it um and i think it's more acceptable like the past years um for women you know to set high goals and to go for them in in, in the running community it, w- it wasn't that long ago women weren't allowed to run no no <laughs> like, it's not that long you ago look at actually, the Boston no. Marathon, yes you know, it wasn't yes that many years ago and um, we're, no. we're starting to pay for that well <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to wrap it up christina um i really appreciate your time what's next on the cards 
so I'm in a situation where some of my races are getting cancelled. So my next race was to do the national championship in trail running. It's in May. It, it hasn't been cancelled yet, but I think it will. Um, this fall, I was about to do the multi-stage race for Rangers, a charity race uh, in Kenya. I don't know if it's on. Um, and in November, I was planning, um, I was hoping to be selected to represent Denmark um, to the Long Mountain Championship, World Championship in Lanzarote. Um, so I don't know about this year. Uh, I was also thinking about going back to the Bob Graham and give it another go, maybe this summer. But I'm, I'm not really sure, and I, I can't. All a bit I, up I don't, in the air at the minute, isn't it? <laughs> yes. So I don't want to sit down and make mm. a plan in this situation right now. So I, I guess I'm a bit on hold uh, to to see where this is taking us as is the rest of the as the rest of the running community do you fancy yes. something like the backyard because it's sort of in people's faces now it seems to be a sport in itself yes i'm very tempted to do the backyard but as as long as i'm you know as long as i'm running on two national team the trail um national team the mountain national team and <laughs> I, I just, if, if I'm doing the backyard ultra, I'm going to destroy myself. It would take many months afterwards to get me back running competitions again. So right now I'm, I'm more focused on, on some of, can you call it a bit shorter races? I don't think you can do that when I also sign up for, for multi-stage events. Mm. I, I just know if I do the backyard ultra, I It's all I in have, or nothing. You have to be all yes. in, don't you? It's yes, all about time yes. and you know that you've got plenty yes. of time, you know, to look at the likes of the backyard ultras, like, cause the endurance does seem to grow or stay with you mm-hmm. in later years. So you've got plenty of time for things like that. So when you're racing and have opportunities to race for your country, it's now the time, like, isn't it really? Christina, exactly. that's been absolutely excellent. I appreciate that. I'm mm-hmm. um, sorry for taking up so much of your time, um, but I really enjoyed it. I could have sat here and listened to you more. Unfortunately, <laughs> I've got a meeting to go to. <laughs> like, um, but oh, I do, me too. What's a pleasure, Robbie. Um, I wish you all the best for the rest of the year. I'll be keeping an eye out to see what you're doing. Um, it was amazing watching you. I did dot watch all the way through the seven marathons and I was elated. Yeah. I was praying <laughs> on the last day that you were able to hold it together because um, anything can go wrong. You know, your knee can go, your hip can go. And yeah. I was like, let another woman win it. <laughs> Give me something to talk about. Um, Because it's great to see it, you know, just more and more women get taken these podium places because it really is inspiring the nation behind them. Thanks very much. Thank you, Robbie. And have an insightful year when we get past this. (laughs) Yeah, you too. You too. Christina isn't a name I'd heard of before, but she has catapulted herself into the world of ultra running. We're going to see a lot more from this amazing up-and-coming endurance athlete, so keep an eye out for her name in the very near future. I'd just like to finish by saying this is a very crazy time. The world is struggling to manage with the coronavirus, so it's important that each one of us do what we can by not taking risks, maintaining social distances and only traveling to places where necessary. I'm running a short competition on the Inspirational Runner podcast group on Facebook to celebrate the podcast's second birthday with star guest Dean Karnazes, so make sure you drop in and join our community. You will be greatly welcomed.
Until next week, stay safe and keep on moving.